evening, Lord. It's me again. Ask you for your help. Ask you for your grace. To take your word and break it and bless it. For I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I want you to, to turn to Genesis 1 1. I've not succeeded, but my intent in going to Genesis 1 1 was not to engage in speculation, but to show how great our God is. And um, I regret I've not been able to do that. And so, let me have another go tonight. Prior to creation, everything that was consisted of God. He filled all because he is all in all. The majestic glory of God, the Shekinah, enveloped everything. And it was at that occasion that suddenly there was a beginning of what we now call space and time. The beginning or this beginning has no tangible date as far as we are concerned. You listen to scientists, you listen to theologians, and they speak from millions of years to thousands of years. The fact is, we have no idea of when it occurred. It's simply a punctuation mark in the era we called eternity. Now, that boggles the mind of most scientists because it transcends comprehension, especially those who are naturalists by persuasion. Geologists and archeologists are preoccupied with the what question, to which Genesis simply says, Bereshit, in the beginning. Engineers are preoccupied with the how question, to which Genesis simply says, Ba'ara, created. Philosophers are preoccupied with the why question. What is his purpose? And the answer is, who can discern the mind of God? Only the Holy Spirit had the ability to search the deep things of God. Physicists are preoccupied with the what question. And of course, the what question given in Genesis is Hashemayim wa'etz aharetz, the heavens and the earth. The plain fact is this. It's an act of God. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not a freak. It was a deliberate, dynamic act of the Almighty. Now we looked at three propositions and the only one of real worth and value is that which is factual although you get some blessing for looking at the figurative but we've considered 
very, very casually the three propositions. Then we looked at the three influential powers. For it says Elohim, Ruach, which is the Spirit of God, and then the Amen, which is the Word. Tonight I want us to look, and I hope that this becomes meaningful to you. I want us to look at the three distinctive places which are mentioned in Genesis 1 1. The three distinctive places. The text simply says, Bereshit bara Elohim es hashemaim wa'itz heratz. Haratz. In the beginning, created Elohim, the heaven and the earth is the way that it's written in the Hebrew text. But what does Hashemaim wa'itz haratz mean? Well, the obvious response to that is Haaratz is the earth and it represents the terrestrial globe. Hashemaim is the heavens which speaks of the aerial or the celestial firmament. But simply to link it to that is to limit the passage because the passage infers multiple locations, not just heaven and earth. There is a heaven. There is an earth documented in verse 1. And there was God. And so you have to ask the question, where was God? If he is creating the heavens, if he is creating the earth, he is prior to both, so where was he? So I want to talk about those three areas tonight. The heavens, the earth, and where God was. In modern scientific thought, it comes to this conclusion, the heavens represent the macrocosm. Earth represents microcosm and the other, where God was, represents the macrocosm. Now those are three lovely words. How do you spell them? Well, I spell them T-H-E-M. <laughs> what does it mean? I have given thee three words a different title because that I want to share what these three words mean to me. When I talk of macrocosm, which is the heavens, I th I'm speaking of the sphere of his majesty. When I speak of microcosm, the planet Earth, I'm speaking of the sphere of ministry. And then when I speak of macrocosm, which is the divine residence, I'm speaking of the sphere of mystery. Now walk with me through these three ideas. The sphere of majesty, 
the sphere of ministry and the sphere of mystery. And I hope that by the time I finish that you will simply want to say, wow, how great is our God. Because that's what Genesis 1-1 is all about. It's all about God. We look at the creation, we look at the effects, we look at the results, and we say they're wonderful. But the real issue of Genesis 1-1 is looking at Elohim or looking at the Lord. Now, to introduce the sphere of majesty, the gospel writers advise us, which is according to Jewish tradition, that at the feast of Passover, every meal, particularly the pre-Passover meal and the Passover meal itself, concluded with the singing of a hymn. We know what that hymn happens to be. It happens to be Psalms 113 through 118. Thank God they didn't sing Psalm 119. Because <laughs> if they did, they'd still be there singing it. But look at some of the text that Jesus and the disciples were singing on that night before the cross. It simply says, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but they are idols. And then they go on to list about their idols. Then they come to the, the blessing part, verse 15. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Understand, while Jesus and the disciples were singing, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator was in their midst. Okay, that went over like that. And they didn't recognize him. Because here was the creator, the word, which is documented in verse 3. The word, which is quoted by John in John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word had become clothed in flesh. And they saw him as a man. But they didn't see him as the creator. And there are times in our lives when we have an estimation of God which is too low. It's too common. It's too ordinary. And it's not spectacular enough. You know, as we think of dear Marsha tonight, as soon as the, he used the word fourth level, there was a gasp that went through this congregation. <gasps> because of the big C word. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is bigger than any letter in the, alf in the alphabet. May you be blessed by the Lord, 
the maker of heaven and earth. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and make that statement. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. To you, my brother. But verse 16 continues. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. So let's look at the sphere of majesty. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 1. And God called the expanse. Rakia is the Hebrew word, and it literally means firmament. He called the expanse sky. I think the King James simply calls it heaven. Shamaim. And it literally means lofty. He called the expanse that which is lofty, that which is high, that which is above. And then he goes on to say, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. The psalmist describes this place of majesty this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaim the works of his hands. And then he goes on to say that they do this continuously, whether it be the day or whether it be by night. There was a mystical writer who was a part of the Assemblies of God. His name was Walter Butler. And Butler was a true mystic. And he came to Australia while we were in Australia, and he spoke on the, on the text from Isaiah, treasures of darkness. Now that is a typical, that is a traditional uh, idea that comes from the, the mystic tradition, that they look for things of beauty, things of wonder, things, redemptive things in difficult times. And Butler, made this statement. So please understand, it it's not me just quoting from memory. We were at a Christmas camp, and of course down under, that's summertime. It was a hot, hot Christmas camp. In fact, they have the same kind of heat wave that year that they've been having thus far this year. Except thankfully, in Australia, the temperature can drop quickly. It can drop from 110 degrees to 60 degrees in 20 minutes. When you get the wind coming in off the desert, it's explosive the heat. Then you get a change of wind that comes up from Antarctica, and the temperature just goes <laughs> But we were in the midst of a heat. Now, Butler was speaking in the morning, so we said, I want you to look outside because it is an, an outdoor camp. So I want you to look outside. And there they had the sides of, of the tabernacle down so 
we looked out. He said, what you see? Uh, some said we see grass. Some said we, we see chalets. One guy said, I see heat shimmering off the concrete. <laughs> he said, yeah, but basically all you see is sunlight. So that's all you see during the day. But now, he said, let's turn off the sunlight. Let the night come, what you see. And so we're going to talk about, well, in the north, you see the Great Dipper. In the south, in the southern hemisphere, you see the, the Southern Cross. And he began to talk of the majesty of the heavens. He said, in the daytime, we are limited by what we see. But the nighttime, we begin to understand how big, how great, how vast is our universe. He said, that's part of the treasure of darkness. That every time we go through a dark period in life, it's a challenge and a call for us to see the greatness of God, not just be concerned with the greatness of our problem. Now that would preach. If I, there are some good preachers around us, and I know that would preach. In times of darkness, instead of being scared by the darkness, look and see the greatness of our God. The heavens, the firmament, the universe, the sun, all plays a role in the revealing of the majesty of God. And it's consistent. Revelation by day, the sense of awe by night. The expanse underscores the excellence of his creative work. Philosophers have long wondered over the fact, why is it so big? From the primitive philosophers of Greece, right through modern day, one of the technical questions, why does it have to be so big? One of the most eminent astronomers in the world today is Dr. Ross. And Dr. Ross, who became a Christian at the age of 19, and from there he went to uh, MIT. From MIT he went to Caltech, and then from Caltech to another university, and is one of the leading astronomers in the world today. He's an apologist for the Christian faith. He said out of all of his evaluation and out of all of his studies, everything in the universe that we see and what we don't see is necessary for life on planet Earth. Everything is there. Why is it so big? Simply because God wants to focus upon planet Earth. Well, 
if it's not big, if it's not important, why is there so little said about it in the scriptures? For when you look at the scriptures, the divine focus is on earth, not on the universe. Now, if you want to know a little more about the universe, I invite you to read a book. Now, what book do you think you ought to read if you want to know a little more about the universe? One of the best loved books in the Bible, the book of Job. People have often wondered, why did God put the book of Job or allow the book of Job to be recorded? Because all it does is pain and anguish, gloom and doom. Guys are asking questions and making statements about things they don't know anything about. And that's part of the day. But if you want to understand a little about the universe, read the book of Job. In fact, in chapter 38 and 39, God asks Job, who had been doing enough of his complaining. No, he hadn't cursed God. He hadn't brought an accusation against God. But he, he did ask some questions of his own. And in fact, if you want to read another cute little book, read G. Campbell Morgan's book, Jesus Answers the Questions of Job. It's a small document but it's so cute and so quaint that every question that Job raised, oh, that I had a mediator, Jesus answered every question raised by Job. But if you want to know about the universe, read chapter 38 and 39. And there you have the author of the universe asking questions. In fact, he asked Job over 60 questions. And Job goes, huh? Where were you? Huh? Where were you? Huh? Who did this? Huh? Who hung this? Huh? Over 60 questions are asked by the Almighty of Job. If you want to know, question about the universe, read Job, chapter 38 to 39. Job was not a caveman. He had intelligence which was equal to that which we have today. He had insight of the universe. In Job chapter 9, he, speaking of the Almighty One, alone stretches the heavens. The implication is that the universe is growing. No, scientists, modern scientists, didn't come to that discovery until the turn of the 20th century. Now, Albert Einstein said, oh, 
universe is going. In fact, you can tell whether stars are going away or coming to by the color that they emit, either red or blue. We determine which direction they're going. And so we now accept that because a scientist has told us. But the Bible has told us that way back in the book of Job, I mean Job. <laughs> but also in Psalm 104, verse 2, it says, He wraps himself in light as with a garment, and he stretches out the hem like a tent. They knew about the expansion of the universe hundreds and thousands of years, even before we were able to ask the question, because up until recently, we thought everything was uniformism. What was is, and what is always will be. But we've discovered that that is no longer the case. And so, God asked the question, who determined its size? Verse 5. And Isaiah answered that question. He determined the size. He measures it by a span. And so from one end of the universe to the other is measured by God said, that's going to be big enough for now. I have to say, that's a pretty big hand. Friend, that's the hand that's holding you up. That's the hand which the scripture simply says, and who can pull us out of his hand? The heavens declare the glory of God. But I have to ask, and I need to hurry. Why are humanists so fascinated? with the universe. Well, three reasons. They look at the, at the universe and they do not think our planet is special. They look at the universe and they do not think humans are special. They look at the universe, and in their ignorance, they do not believe the Bible is special. And so they came to the conclusion, the universe is so large, there may be other forms of life out there. This became, the universe is so large, there ought to be other forms of life out there. And this morphed to the universe is so large, there has to be other forms of life out there. Therefore, we have the obligation to seek them out. And billions and billions and billions of dollars are trying to prove their theory instead of going back to the book. This is a majesty, a place of majesty. Let me look at the sphere of ministry the planet Earth. We use a telescope to discover the majesty of the universe. We use a microscope 
to unveil the secrets of planet Earth. Let me give you a, a statement which underscores the difference between the place of majesty and the place of ministry. The heavens reveal the splendor of our Lord. The earth reveals his signature. Okay, you didn't catch it. The heavens reveal his splendor. How big is our God? If he can hold it all in the palm of his hand, how big is our God? But when you look at the earth, you see a thumbprint. When Brother Darwin <laughs> talked of a simple cell, he did it out of bitterness and out of ignorance. He'd been studying for the ministry. Well, you know, people study for the ministry have turned out in all kinds of ways of shapes, don't they, huh? <laughs> but because he was turned down, he, he allowed a root of bitterness to come into his mind and into his heart. And so between bitterness and ignorance, he came to a conclusion that everything came from a simple cell. We now know that there is no such thing as a simple cell. That every cell is more complex than a General Motors factory. It has every phase functioning within it. Of course, if he'd understood that, he would not come up with that with a bright idea that I came from a monkey. Don't say it. Don't say it. No response from the crowd this, this evening. When we talk of planet Earth, or the sphere of ministry, we're speaking of the entire mass of which our planet is composed. In fact, as scientists now use microscopes, both radio and otherwise, to examine, we are beginning to see the inner workings of our planet. Through quantum physics, we're seeing things and sensing things and understanding things which was absolutely and totally unknown 60 years ago. They were just ideas in the mind of a scientist. Now they can be detailed and documented with clarity. We find that at the very, very essence of our, of our planet, at the very essence of substance, it's like a, a raging volcano's life. There's dynamism, there's energy, there's power, there's movement. It's all come because the one who made it is such. Now the Holy Spirit, in verse 2, simply says, he brooded over the darkness because the earth, what we're talking about, the place of ministry, 
was void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. This raises an honest question, and let me jump. This raises an honest question. In fact, the Lord asked Job in verse 30, in chapter 38, verse 19, what in the way of the movement of light or where does darkness reside? Well, that raises the question, how many kinds of darkness are there? Einstein, when he was a young man, a young student, listening to his prof, waxing eloquent in his class as he was trying to unravel and undermine the, the basis of the foundation of young students' faith, made a statement about darkness. And Einstein simply said, uh, Mr. Prof, there is no such thing as darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. It can only get so dark when it gets to zero lumens. It can't go any darker. Light, on the other hand, is not limited. It just keeps going and growing and exploding. And we found this out when they exploded the atom. The light was so blinded, they'd never seen light that, like that before. God says, where does the darkness reside? Now, Einstein was right, and he was wrong. Wasn't he? I see somebody doing this, which means yes or no. <laughs> Einstein was making a reference to what is called technically simple darkness. That which is a very simple, natural phenomenon. Turn out the light, and the darkness exists. But we now know there's another form of darkness. Not just simple darkness, but solar darkness. For we are now able to discover dark matter dark energy, dark orbs, which are the nickname, the vacuum cleaner of the universe. That whenever something needs to be cleaned up in the universe, it gets stuck in a dark hole, never to be retrieved. So we know that solar darkness exists. We're not quite sure of its function or of its nature. We just know it's there. But there's another form of darkness, one with which we are very cognizant of, and that's spiritual darkness. It's a darkness which can be sensed. 
how often have you walked into a room and said, oh, oh. Do you sense there's a negative atmosphere there? You are aware that there's some, that things are not as they ought to be. You become cognizant of a spiritual darkness. But the, whatever the darkness was that's mentioned in Genesis 1, 2, and we, it's not described. But one thing we do know, that is when the word spoke, the darkness was dispelled. It was dispelled then, and it always will be dispelled because the name of Jesus is bigger than the darkness. Whether it be the prince of darkness, whether it be the imps of mischief, which do his bidding, at the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every crown is taken off, layer his feet, and darkness has to submit to darkness. And so the question is, you know, sin is so little spoken about the universe in the Bible. And so much on planet Earth is spoken of in the Bible. Why? Uh, authors are very astute. And they have noted that the importance of a subject is determined by the amount of material and the way that that material is designated in a book. And the reason why there's so much about planet Earth in the book and the inhabitants of planet Earth in the book is this. It's not a story of the universe. It's a story of redemption. The Bible was never intended to be a scientific manual, though everything that is said in the Bible agrees with much of what modern scientists say, particularly those who speak the truth. But it was not written as a scientific manual. It was written as a love story. And the love story is this. God loves me. God loves you. Let me take a sidebar for a moment. If God could create this wonderful expanse that we see on what we call creation in a very short period of time because it came. Everything that was necessary came into being in a moment. The molding of it, the forming of it. He did at different stages. But if he can create that much in such a short period of time, what do you think the place that he's going to prepare for us is going to be like? Because it's taken 
at least 2,000 years. And we know that according to the Hebrew tradition, that the bridegroom, though he's engaged and ready to get married, he's not permitted to go to, to pick up his wife until the place that he's prepared for them to live is satisfactory to the father of the son. And it's the father of the son who determines when the son can go and, and pick up his bride. Now, he's been anxious for days. He's been waiting for weeks. And his dad kept saying, uh-uh, you not ready yet? I am. No, 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 no. Where are you going to live? It's not ready yet. And Jesus has been preparing a place for 2,000 years. And we're living in a period of time when Father says, it's ready. You may go and find your bride. What a day that will be. But I must, I must hurry to a close. We have looked at the sphere of majesty. We've looked at the sphere of ministry, that the word that brought order was the same word that paid the price in full, not just for creation to come to order, but for his creatures to come to order. That's the mystery. That's the amazing story that's hidden in Genesis 1, 1, 3. But look at the sphere of mystery. And I'm nervous about this. The sages speak of what they call parallel lines of existence. Parallel lines of existence. Now this does make sense to us. But there's an illustration of it given in 2 Kings chapter 6. You know the story. The king of Syria had forgotten the grace of God that had been given to one of his generals. It was probably towards the same king, but at least they'd forgot because they were about the documentation of it. And he was trying to create mischief for the northern tribes. He wanted some of their land. He wanted some of their treasures. And so he would send a raiding party to rob the area. But every time he sent a raiding party, they fell into a trap. Until eventually the, the king began to think, you know, I got a traitor in my cabinet. And so he asked the question, which of you is exposing our secrets? And the guy said, it's not us, O king. It's a prophet of God in Dothan. And everything that you say here and every act of mischief that you intend to perform here, God tells him and he tells the, the people. And so every time we, we go to do something, we fall into a trap. 
The king said, get him. And so they sent a large army. They surrounded the city of Dothan. You know the story. That morning, his servant is the first out of bed. And as he's preparing the, the coffee for his early morning uh, breakfast, he looks out the window and says, ooh, 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 ooh. He cries out, my master, what are we going to do? Elisha says, uh, about what? That. The army of Benadiah. Elijah, Elisha simply says, Lord, open Baba's eyes. What do you mean open my eyes? Who was first out of bed this morning? Who got up to make the coffee? Who saw those guys first? And you ask him, God, to open my eyes? My eyes are open, brother. And Elisha again says, open Baba's eyes. Open his eyes, the quote, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Parallel dimensions. They were there. Waiting for a command from Elisha. We have another example. In fact, it's documented this way in Genesis 32. Jacob is returning to the land. In verse 32, somebody says, Jacob also went on his way. And the angels of God met him. The Hebrew term, Moloch, simply means angel. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And he called the name of the place Machanayim. But it's the meaning of the word which has significance. Because the word simply means two camps. Here was the family of Jacob. If uh, Vic was here, he'd say Yaakov. Here was the family, the household Yaakov. With all their cattle, with all their belongings. And here were the angels of God. And Jacob recognized that presence. This is an example, an illustration of what the sages call the interchange between the natural and the spiritual. There is a other place. 
there's another dimension. Not just the heavens we see, but the heavens we do not see. There is a place. In fact, the hymn writer said, there is a place where spirits blend. The other place is called in scripture the habitation of God by the spirit. Heaven is the place where God resides and from where he rules and where he is served. Micaiah the prophet said it this way in 1 Kings 22 verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him. On his right hand and on his left. In the prayer of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 26 says, look down from heaven your holy dwelling place and bless your people Israel. Yuri Gogin, is that how you pronounce the name Gogin? The first Russian astronaut. Yuri, is it Gogin? Gogan? It's something like that. As he moved around the place in in his little spacecraft, he said, I looked for God and I didn't find him because he would look in the wrong place. He was looking in the heavens which are seen. God resides in the dimension in which are not seen, but which are certainly felt and known and seen. Mathematicians, in fact, my boss, postulated the idea that there is another place which consists of 10 dimensions. Now he was an atheist. And so I used to ask the question, so what's faith? As he'd begin to move into all kinds of delightful equations. I said, yeah, but what's faith? In these other dimensions. We know what's in these other dimensions. God is there. The angels are there. And other things are there. Has a prince of power of darkness floating around in this other dimension. Whatever level, we do not know, but we do know. There came a time in the life of Job where he entered into the throne room of God to discuss Job. In this other dimension,
place of God's grace, the place of God's glory. Revelation chapter 12 speaks for there being war in the heavenlies. He's not talking of people on Jupiter throwing thunderbolts at Mars. He's not talking of what used to be Mars's orbit when periodically it would come so close to the Earth it was bigger than the moon. Which terrified the people. And you'll find that, that, uh, that Mars got the name the God of War. I'm not talking about that. He talked that in this other sphere where spirit dwells, there was a battle taking place. And the battle was between Michael fighting against the dragon. And the dragon fights back. And the dragon loses. Jesus claimed to have come from this place. When he said, I came from heaven, he's not talking about the universe. He talked about this spiritual place. Hebrews 8 says that Jesus is now back at this place. The place of where God rules. The place where God reigns. The seat of his throne. Revelation chapter 4 says, this place has a door. What? The negative mystics call portals. That if only we could find the portal, we could have access to all kinds of mystical entities. It's where they claim ETs come from. They come through the portal. The ultimate promise that's given is this. In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth is passed away but the seat of God remains forever. He who created what we now see will recreate what we do not know and understand. And again, he will do it for his glory. And even as he prepared a place for man, he's going to prepare a place for the church for the glory of his name. But there's one thing which Stimulates my imagination. On Mount Graham in Arizona, because of the dryness of the atmosphere, it's a wonderful place to build these huge telescopes, radioscopes, radarscopes. Do you know who's been and built the largest of the group on Mount Graham? 
the Catholic Church. What are they looking for? Oh, if they want to see the wonder of the universe, (coughs) all they've got to do is go to NASA and ask for pictures from the Hubble telescope. Why would they spend this exorbitant amount of money to build this grandiose edifice. What are they looking for? One of the Catholic scientists who happens to be a a Monsignor, Monsignor, he's a monk, says we are hoping to find a way to pierce the veil. Because we believe that planet Earth will one day be invaded from beyond the veil. And we want to be forewarned so we can be forearmed. Do you believe that? If they want to go beyond the veil, just say the name Jesus. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every time you utter his name, opening and if only we had years to share those frequencies we transcend the ability of time we'd hear him say I'm listening Barashish Bara Elohim I left out the eighth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the greatest of all his creation and the masterpiece of his formation happens to be you happens to be me. And because humans messed it up, he sent his son that he might make all things new. And for that end, I say, thank you, Jesus. Good night. Next week, you're going to listen to a real teacher.